we're continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. And this is teaching number 52. It's on the discipline of God. And the title is called Discipline, the Development of Faith in God's Love, Acceptance, and Goodness. And our study comes out of Hebrews 12, 4 through 13, which reads this way. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? And it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. That's a quotation of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And then verse 7, endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. So the question we want to look at tonight is, what is the discipline of God? Whenever we do Bible study, we've always, always, always have to remember that when we're reading, say, Paul's letters that he wrote, this letter written to the Hebrews, the letter that Peter and James wrote, that they were not writing to us. This is not a letter written to me. There are things in the letter that are for me, that are applicable to us but none of it is written to us. And that's the first step to accurately interpreting Scripture is understanding that there is a real writer of this letter writing to a real audience about some real issues going on within the time frame that it was written. And so when the writer speaks about God's discipline, we cannot at all flippantly tag a meaning to that phrase and apply it in a sermon to our lives in a way that the writer never intended. That would be a, an abuse of Scripture and a misuse of Scripture. It happens all the time, though. As we train ourselves in how to study the Bible and we study it accurately, we can begin to spot in those who are teaching the Bible how they've skipped observation and they've skipped interpretation. They've gone straight to application. It becomes really obvious as we ourselves learn scripture and how to study. So the context of Hebrews 12, where it talks about the discipline of God, the context of this really begins in Hebrews 10. And there's a thought, there's a flow of thought that the writer has when he comes to God's discipline. And we've got to follow this, got to follow the logical writing, the logical thoughts of the writer to his audience. And so if you look in Hebrews chapter 10, it reads this way, verse 32, Hebrews 10, 32, says, remember those early days. That's the days after Jesus rose from the dead, it's the days after his ascension. It's the days, he said, after you receive the light or the knowledge or the truth about Jesus as the Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the meaning of the cross, complete forgiveness of sins, the new covenant replacing the old covenant. And he's writing to Jewish people, he's writing to Hebrew people that they've received the light about Jesus that salvation is in Jesus, in the cross. It says, remember the early days when you'd received the light, when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. So he's writing to a group of people who had suffered greatly in the days after the ascension of Jesus in the early period of the book of Acts, the early days. And they were suffering because they believed Jesus was the Christ. They believed he was Messiah. Remember, Jesus talks about this starting in John 15, verse 18, all the way through John 16, verse 4. 
that the religious Jewish leaders, the leaders of the synagogues, were going to persecute believers in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. We see that persecution on full display in the book of Acts. So he's writing to a group of people who he's very familiar with because he knew they had endured great conflict full of suffering when they received the light of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ. And because of that, they suffered greatly. And he explains what this suffering was that they experienced. He says, sometimes, this is verse 33 of Hebrews 10, sometimes you were publicly ex exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions, eternal life. The, the inheritance that is a person's in Christ when this life on earth is over, all that's coming to us is this better and lasting possessions, which the writer begins writing about in Hebrews chapter 11. So then he says this in verse 35. So do not throw away your confidence. Confidence in what? In what you receive, the, receive the light. You receive the knowledge of the truth about Jesus as the Christ. You receive the knowledge of his work on the cross. You receive the knowledge of the New Testament of grace. You receive the knowledge that the law had been replaced by grace. Salvation was in the person of Christ, not under the law, but faith in Christ, not following the law of Moses. And he says, don't throw away your confidence that you had in the early days. You were confident that Jesus was the Christ. You were confident that he was the Messiah. And he's telling them, don't throw that confidence away, meaning they're on the fence of, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Christ? Is he really the one of the Jewish scriptures? Is he really the son of God, Hebrews chapter one? Is he really the son of man, Hebrews chapter two? They're really beginning to consider abandoning Jesus as the Christ and returning to the law of Moses. And the writer is telling them in the context don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And then he continues when he says in verse 36, you need to persevere. That's a key word we're going to see in a minute. You need to persevere through the current suffering that they are experiencing, through the current persecution that they're experiencing, so that when you have done the will of God, which is believe, that's the will of God, have faith in Jesus as the Christ in his work on the cross, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised, the better and lasting possessions, the eternal inheritance. That's what Hebrews 11 is about, that those who died in Hebrews 11 died in faith, yet they had not received what God had promised. And we looked at what the promise was, was this lasting eternal city, that ultimately we see that this eternal city is the new covenant city of grace that comes out of heaven to earth. We see this talked about in Hebrews chapter 12. And so this thought is all the way through 10, 11, and 12. Even in the 13, Hebrews 13 verse 14, he talks about they're looking forward to the eternal city. So he's telling them, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere through this persecution so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And the will of God is faith, believe. And he's seeking to encourage these Jewish believers who are under persecution in verse 37 with hope and confidence in the return of Christ. So he says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. That's a quote of Habakkuk 2.3, the coming of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah, as prophesied about in Habakkuk 2.3. So he's getting them to focus on the soon return of Christ. The writers of these New Testament letters that we have, these writers 
are confident in the soon return of Christ when they were writing the letters. I think Paul was expecting the soon return of Christ. The writer of Hebrews is expecting the soon return of Christ. Those in the book of Acts are expecting the soon return of Christ. James was expecting the soon return of Christ. Peter was expecting the soon return of Christ. So the writer is seeking to encourage his Jewish reader who's going through persecution, and he knows the audience that he's writing to, though he also knows that there will be many people who read his letter that he doesn't know, and it's also an evangelistic letter to the Jewish people who haven't believed, but it's also a letter of encouragement to the Jewish people who have believed, and an encouragement to the Jewish people who are on the fence. Am I going to believe or not believe? So he's writing to say, hey, hold on, don't give up, don't quit, don't throw in the towel, don't throw away your confidence in Jesus as the Christ, though you're being persecuted severely, because in just a little while, Jesus is coming back. Then he goes into verse 38 of chapter 10. He says, now, how are you going to live until Jesus comes back? And he says, and, and again, he's now quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and he says, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those, this is verse 39, we do not belong to those who shrink back in unbelief in Jesus as the Christ and in unbelief of his return and are destroyed in the judgment to come. We've looked a lot about that in our studies. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed in judgment, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. That's the will of God in verse 36. What is the will of God? That a person would have faith in Jesus and be saved. That's God's will for people. And he says, we, we're not of the ones who are going to shrink back in unbelief and who are destroyed in judgment. We're of the ones who have faith and will be saved from judgment and live ultimately in this coming New Testament city of grace that Hebrews chapter 11 speaks about, Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 speaks about, as well as Revelation 21 and 22 talks about this coming city of grace. Now, when we come to chapter 11, the topic of faith that began in Hebrews 10, the righteous will live by faith. This topic of faith continues through Hebrews 11. And faith in Hebrews 11 is having an eternal perspective on life so that a person looks beyond their current experiences to their future expectations. Here's what's coming in the future. I can endure what's happening in the present because of what's coming in the future. I can have faith in the present in what's coming in the future. And so what we see in Hebrews 11, people are living with faith and they're dying with faith, but they never experience the future they expected when they died. And that's how Hebrews 11 ends when the writer writes verse 39 of Hebrews 11, these were all commended for their faith and they died, yet none of them received what had been promised. And it's specifically talking in there about the city that God will build. God is the architect and builder of the city to come. And we see later on, later on in Hebrews, it's the new covenant city of grace. We also see that in Revelation 21 and 22. So all those who died in Hebrews 11 were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The city that God built, that he was the architect and designer of, since God had something better for us, that's the new covenant of grace. It's what Christ did for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect through this something better that God had for us, and the something better is the new covenant of grace and that's what the writer of Hebrews writes about, the better testament, the superior ministry of Jesus, the better ministry. It's better because through the blood of Christ, we're made perfect, we're made holy, we're made righteous, we're 
purified from all sins, forgiven of all sins, and brought close to God, which then enables a person to live in the coming New Testament city of grace that comes out of heaven to earth. All right. Then he comes into Hebrews 12. Again, he's still addressing this issue of faith that he began in the latter verses of Hebrews 10. Verse 1, therefore, this is Hebrews 12, since we, the Jewish people living in AD 65, are surrounded by such a great cloud. Cloud is not the Greek word here. It's the Greek word for multitude. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so many people who died in faith, looking forward to a future that they had not yet received, that future was the expectation of the city that God built. God designed and God built. So the lives of those in Hebrews 11 are testifying to a life of faith that endures the hardships of life, seeing life through an eternal perspective and all the hardships that come with life, is seeing the future even in the the pressures of life, the persecution of life, the hardships of life. They kept an eternal perspective on life because of faith. They saw the God who was invisible in the visible reality of life. The writer speaks about that with Moses. Moses saw him who was invisible, which influenced and impacted the decisions that Moses made during his earthly life because he saw the eternal God. Therefore, verse 1 of Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We looked at that a lot last week, but getting entangled in unbelief is very easy when a person's going through hardships. It's easy to get entangled in a belief that God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, God's abandoned me, God's rejecting me, God's punishing me, God's against me, He's not for me. It's very easy to get entangled in unbelief as a believer, specifically during this time for the Jewish people who were going through extreme persecution. It would be very easy to get entangled in unbelief in Jesus as the Christ, unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah. Because remember back in Hebrews chapter 10, he said, my righteous ones will live by faith until Jesus comes, live by faith. And he's saying it's, it would be easy to get entangled in a life of non-faith, of unbelief in Jesus as the Christ, of unbelief in the love of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. And we'll look at that momentarily. So he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That phrase right there is going to be key in understanding what the discipline of God is. That is a key verse. That's why we always want to study individual verses within their broader context, that we can't stop at a single verse and become single verse theologians, so to speak, that we created an entire doctrine out of one verse. We've got to keep reading. We've got to read before. We've got to read after. We've got to read large amounts of scripture. We've got to place a book into where it fits within God's program and within all the other books. So remember, and let us run with perseverance. Let us not quit. Let's don't give up. Let's don't throw away our confidence that Jesus is the Christ. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There was the race of the new covenant of grace, the race of suffering for believing in Jesus as the Christ and his work on the cross. And then he points them to Jesus. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, or in the Greek there, it's looking to the faith of Jesus. That's what it's saying, looking to the faith of Jesus as an example, as a model of what faith is that perseveres. He says, if you want to know what persevering faith is, look back to those who came before you and died in faith, and then look to Jesus and his faith. And by looking back to those who died before you and by looking to the faith of Jesus, then it's going to enable you, the one of reading Hebrews in AD 65, for your faith to be strengthened to endure the persecution. 
And then he talks about the persecution that Jesus experienced. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, or fixing our eyes on the faith of Jesus for the joy set before him, which was what the cross would accomplish. There was nothing joyful about persecution for Jesus. There was nothing joyful about the pain he endured on the cross or from people. The joy was the future. Remember, we looked at what Jesus said about a mother giving birth. There's nothing joyful about the pain of childbirth. But after the child was born, that's when the mother's joy comes later. All right. Jesus talked about that in the book of John. So that's the thought here. There was a joy coming for Jesus, but it would come after the persecution and after the pain of the cross. And that joy was the accomplishments of the cross for you and me. Complete forgiveness, complete righteous reconciliation with God. It was also the joy of the resurrection. It was the joy of Jesus being in the presence of the Father. And we looked at verses to confirm what exactly the joy of Jesus was that would come after the pain of the cross and the pain of persecution. So for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, the pain of the cross, scorning its shame. And Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, meaning the accomplishments of the cross were complete. That's why Jesus sat down. That was the joy. The joy was Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, knowing that it was finished. He had established the new covenant of grace. He had established complete forgiveness. He now was in the joy of the Father. Again, we looked at that last week in our study. Then he tells the Jewish people here who are reading this letter, remember, it's not written to us. It's written to a specific audience at a specific time for a specific reason. And he's seeking to encourage them, to empower them, to strengthen them. Don't throw away your confidence that you had in the early days when you received the light. The way they wouldn't throw away their confidence in Christ and in the new covenant that he established and go back to the law in the light of persecution was by focusing their attention on Jesus and his faith that endured persecution on the cross. And he says to them, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Think about what he experienced in his persecution. Think about what he experienced on the cross. And as you think about Jesus and the pain of the cross and the persecution of his critics, you're going to be empowered to persevere as you contemplate the cross of Jesus. So it says, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners. So first he talks about Jesus enduring the cross. Now he's talking about Jesus enduring his critics. And his critics crucified him. His critics called for his arrest. They called for his trial. Pilate tried to dismiss Jesus. He tried to give Jesus back to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people said, no, we don't want Jesus. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. The opposition toward Jesus, we can read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It was fierce opposition. It was hatred toward Jesus. And remember, Jesus told the disciples, in the same way the Jewish leaders hated me, they're going to hate you. He talks about that in John chapter 15, verses 18 through John 16, verse 2. The world, Jesus, when he says the world will hate you the way it hated me, he's talking about the world of religion. He's talking about the world of the Jews, the religious world of the Jewish leaders. That the way they hated you, they're going to hate me, and they're going to kick you out of their synagogues. They're going to beat you. They're going to flog you. Some are going to put you to death, and they think they're going to be doing a service for God when this persecution breaks out. The persecution broke out in the book of Acts. We see it on full display in Acts. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 3 of Hebrews 12, Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Weary from what? Weary from the opposition who are against you, the critics who are against you, the persecutors who are against you, because the same ones who oppose Jesus are now opposing the believers. It may be a different generation of 
those who are, are opposing the believers or those who are considering being believers. It's the same mindset. It's a hatred for Jesus. It's a hatred for the thought that he is the Messiah or the Christ. They believed he was a false Messiah and a false Christ. The same belief system continued all through the book of Acts. Just like they rejected Jesus as the Christ and had him sentenced and crucified, they're now rejecting the believers in Jesus who think he's the Christ, who believe he's in the Christ, or who's considering believing Jesus is the Christ. They're now opposing those believers or those who are on the fence of believing or not believing. So it says, I want you to think deeply about what Jesus experienced at the hands of those who opposed him, sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, or so that you will persevere, so that you will not throw away your confidence, the confidence you had at first in the early days when you received the light. Do you see the progression of the thought of the writer here? There's a progression here. There's a logical progression. And as people who study the Bible, it's not easy to pick up on the logical progression because we've been trained just to read the Bible in small snippets. Or we'll read a devotion and the devotion will have a single verse and it'll be the thoughts of the person writing a devotion on that verse. Whereas the person doing the devotion has totally ripped that verse out of context and it has nothing to do with what their devotion is about. So we really have to retrain the way we view Scripture, the way we read Scripture, the way we study Scripture, and the way we apply Scripture. And it's not an easy task, but it can be done. So the writer has a very logical flow of thought. He wants the believers or those who are on the fence not to throw away their confidence, not to shrink back in unbelief, but to believe in Jesus as the Christ, even though they're being persecuted. And they would find strength to persevere so that they would not grow weary and lose heart by thinking about the persecution that Jesus received and his perseverance through his own persecution. So now we come to verse four, following this logical train of thought of the writer. In your struggle against sin, now this isn't talking about you and me and our struggle with a specific sin in our lives. That's how it's typically communicated. That is not the context at all. In your struggle against sin, what's the sin here? It's the sin of the opposition toward belief in Jesus as the Christ and his work on the cross and the establishment of the new covenant of grace. Sin is referring back up to sinners of, of Hebrews 12.3. In your struggle against the sin of those opposing you, you have not resisted those who are opposing you to the point of shedding your blood like Jesus did. That, that's what he's saying. In Jesus' opposition towards sinners, ultimately it cost him his life. But those who are reading the letter, since they're reading the letter, they haven't died yet. They died for their faith, then they wouldn't be reading the letter. So the writer knows that anybody reading this letter that I'm writing in AD 65 is alive. And in their struggle against those who are persecuting them for their belief in Christ or for their possible belief in Jesus, you, the reader of AD 65, have not resisted the persecution to those opposing you to the point of shedding your blood or to the point of death. And then he comes to verse 5 of Hebrews 12. And remember, the Bible is not written in chapters and, and verses. There is no chapter 12. There is no chapter 11. There is no chapter 10. There are no verses. It's just like when you and I write a letter. Sometimes the chapters and the verses break up the flow of the writer, and we tend to read the Bible based upon chapters and verses rather than there's a logical flow here. So now it begins to flow into discipline. And it's very important that we understand everything we just read if we're going to accurately interpret what is the discipline of God. So he says, in your struggle against sin, this is Hebrews 12, 4, you have not resisted the opposition against you, the sinful opposition against you for believing in Jesus as the, as the Christ or considering believing he's the Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood or to the point of death. And he asked them, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? 
that addresses you as a father addresses his son. Now, that's very interesting. He asked them a question. Part of me thinks, since the writer is familiar with the audience that he's writing to, not everybody, but a portion of the audience, it's very possible because the writer, when you read in, when we read in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer knows who the leaders of the assembly were and who the leaders of the assembly are who are going to be the caretakers of this letter. He's very, very familiar with them to the point where he's naming specific names. He talks about Timothy, talks about those in Italy greet you. He knows the audience. He quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. That's the word of encouragement. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement, which is Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Now, it's very possible that he was with them at one point in time in the assembly, that he joined with them in the assembly, that the writer was friends with many of the people in the assembly and who are the caretakers of this letter. And he says, have you forgotten what we talked about in the assembly? Have you forgotten the encouraging words that we learned about in the assembly to give us the power to endure the persecution that we're undergoing was from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. That, that's a high probability here that this has already been taught them in the assembly. Because remember, he said earlier in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He's saying you need each other. You need to be encouraged. You need to be empowered. You need to be strengthened to persevere through the persecution. And assembling together and being encouraged is going to help empower you. So it may be that they've already talked about this together. And he's just reminding them, hey, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? And it's a proverb. Now, one of the things about Proverbs and Judaism is that was one of the main ways that children were taught by their parents. They were taught in Proverbs. We do that to a degree. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's a proverb. I was watching the other night. I really like Benjamin Netanyahu a lot. You know, he was the former prime minister of Israel, the soon to be prime minister of Israel again. And he was being interviewed. And you want to listen to somebody who knows Jewish history. I mean, he's talking about David. He's talking about Abraham. He really understands Jewish history. He has a book that's coming out. And that's why he's, he's on a lot of talk shows, his books coming out. He talked about how his mother taught him through Proverbs. That's part of the Jewish legacy, he said. That, that's how Jewish little boys and little girls learn is they teach through Proverbs. That's why we have the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote. It's a Jewish way of teaching very powerful principles for living through simple phrases. The writer of Hebrews quotes the proverb. He's quoting this proverb to encourage the people because he says, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement? So there's nothing he's about to say that would bring discouragement to somebody. Though typically when it's communicated, it's communicated as a word of fear. God's going to discipline you for your sin. It's, it's to strike fear in the heart of the hearer, which is not what the writer of Hebrews is doing at all. He's not seeking to strike fear into the heart of the hearer. He's seeking to encourage them. I know many times when I've taught on the fullness of the gospel of grace, complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, there's not two forgivenesses, positional and relational. There's only forgiveness. Typically, somebody will say, but God does discipline us for our sins, you know. And they're so afraid that somebody just might hear the gospel of grace and use it to sin that they totally forget about the thousands of people who are going to hear the gospel of grace and escape sin. Therefore, to try to prevent that one person who might use it as a license to sin, Paul was aware of that. That's why he wrote Romans chapter 6. He addresses that topic in Romans chapter 6. But that's not why the writer of Hebrews talks about the discipline of God in Hebrews 12. It has nothing at all to do with 
immorality or, or the sin of if you hear about grace and you start sinning, then God's going to discipline you. That's not the context. We've just journeyed through the context. These people are under persecution because they believe Jesus is the Christ, or they're considering believing Jesus is the Christ. They're under persecution because they've either left the Old Testament of law, they left Judaism, Judaism pointed to Jesus. They've left sacrificing animals. They're no longer observing the festivals and the washings and all the things prescribed in the law contained in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and parts of Exodus and Numbers. They've left that or they're considering leaving that. that that's important to understand that context. They're being opposed because of either what they're believing or what they're thinking about believing. The same people who opposed Jesus and persecuted Jesus are now persecuting them. They're experiencing what Jesus said would happen in John chapter 15, verses 18 through John chapter 16, verse 4. They're in the middle of persecution here. They're being opposed. But they haven't resisted the opposition to the shedding of their blood yet. They haven't died yet. That's the audience. That's the context. So he says, in your struggle against the sinful opposition, the critics of Jesus, and now they're coming at you, you have not resisted their opposition to the point of death. He says, I know you feel like giving up. You're on the verge of throwing away your confidence. You're on the verge of unbelief. You're on the verge of getting ready to be entangled in the sin of unbelief. You're about to throw away your faith. And you're about to say, I don't believe Jesus is the Christ. I don't believe in his work on the cross. I believe he was a false Messiah. The persecution is wearing me down. The persecution is wearing me out. I'm emotionally distraught. I'm mentally distraught. I can't make it. I'm growing weary. I'm growing tired. I can't make it. So the writer is saying, no, you have to persevere. I'm going to show you how to persevere. One, it's look to those in the past who died before you. Look to Jesus on the cross and his persecution by his critics who died for you. And now I want you to look at this verse in Proverbs. Because when you look at this verse in Proverbs, you're going to be encouraged. Have you forgotten that we already talked about it in the assembly? I want, I want to remind you of what we've already talked about in the assembly when I was with you. And now I'm not with you. But I will remind you what we did talk about in the assembly. And he quotes this verse in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. See what it says here? Do not lose heart. It goes right back up to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. He, that's why he's writing to them. He doesn't want them to lose heart and grow weary and throw away their confidence. He wants them to persevere and not lose heart and not grow weary and not throw away their confidence that Jesus is the Christ and go back to the law of Moses because of the persecution. So do not lose heart when he, the Lord, rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his sons. Now, here's what I think the writer's doing here. is He's highlighting two things that's very easy to overlook in this verse. I think everybody's eyes tends to go to the Lord's discipline, the Lord's rebuke, the Lord's chastening. But I don't think that's what he's necessarily highlighting here. He is in a way, and, I, and, and we'll see how he does it. But he's highlighting the love of God for those being persecuted. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his sons. So he's wanting to encourage them with two things, I think. You are loved by God in the middle of this persecution. You are accepted by God in the middle of this persecution. Don't get discouraged. Be encouraged that God loves you and be encouraged that he accepts you. What typically happens when we go through a long period of problems, of pressure, of hardships, of trials? When we go through an unending period of trials, it's very easy for us to begin to think, well, God's abandoned me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Maybe God's punishing me. It's very easy to begin to live as an unbeliever 
even though we're believers. We begin to no longer believe God is good. God is kind. God loves me. God cares for me. God's for me. God's not against me. God's not creating all this to punish me. We can very easily have a mindset of unbelief, even though we're believers. These Jewish people are human beings. They're real people. They're they're experiencing real, real suffering here, real pain, real heartache because they believe in Jesus. These people aren't just going through the everyday pressures of life and problems of life and pain of life. They're literally at death's door for believing in Jesus as the Christ. That's the audience he's writing to. And it's been a consistent persecution. And he's reminding them, God loves you and he accepts you. That's what I think the heart of these verses are, that he's seeking to encourage either the believers, the Jewish believers, or those considering believing. And then he says in verse 7, now he's going to start making some application of this verse that he's read. Endure hardship as discipline. So he's trying to change their perspective on the persecution or the hardships that are associated with the persecution by those opposing them those coming against them. They haven't died yet. They haven't resisted the persecution, the sinful persecution to the point of death. So he's saying, listen, I want you to change your perspective on the hardships you're experiencing. I know your perspective may have shifted to you don't think God loves you. You don't think he cares for you. You don't think he accepts you. You think he's rejected you. You think he's pushed you away. I mean, that's what the entire Psalms are about. You read not all of the Psalms, but as, as you and I read through the Psalms, the psalmist is saying, God, don't, don't reject me. Don't, don't reject me forever. The mindset of the Jew was, God's going to abandon us forever. God's going to reject us forever. When the hard times come, the mindset of the Jew typically was, God's mad at me. God's angry at me. He's against me. And we find out in Romans chapter 8, Paul's giving a whole new perspective that In our present sufferings, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in this persecution and the suffering that we're experiencing that he speaks about in Romans 8. So what he's saying to me in Hebrews 12, 7, endure hardships as discipline. Change your perspective on these hardships. And the perspective is God's not bringing the hardships upon them. That's obvious in the, in the context. The hardships are coming from those who oppose them. But he's saying, listen, in your hardships, God's going to develop your faith. That's what discipline means here. It's training. It's developing of a person's faith. And we'll see that momentarily. It's not an external punishment of God for somebody's sin. Jesus took the sin, the punishment for sin upon himself at the cross. Jesus took the condemnation for sin upon the cross. There's no punishment for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God's not working against the cross here. The the writer's simply saying, I want your perspective on your hardships to be seen through the lens that God's going to use these hardships to develop your faith, to grow your faith, to strengthen your faith so that you can persevere, so that you won't grow weary, so that you won't grow tired, so that you won't throw away your confidence. And we're going to see that in these verses. So endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as children, or in these hardships you're experiencing, God is going to develop you like a father develops a child. The word discipline here means correction. It means training. It means instruction. It means development. And I think one of the things that God's correcting in these believers is this unbelief in his love is this unbelief in his acceptance. Because in the verse he just read, it's God loves you, God accepts you. And I know you're moving into unbelief that God doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. 
He's not going to work something out for your good, even though you're going through some bad things in life. I mean, we get into a mindset of unbelief and our belief system needs to be corrected at times. So endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Remember, this is the writer of Hebrews making application of Proverbs and applying this to the real life situation that these Jewish believers are, are believers who are on the fence are experiencing. Moreover, verse 9 of Hebrews 12, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Now, that's not a blanket statement. He's really referring to fathers who, who didn't abuse their children, who didn't hit their children, who didn't abuse their mother. So we, we can't take this to extremes here. In a general sense, fathers discipline their children for their good. And that's the point he's making here. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. When we get older is when we respect them for it. We don't respect them for it when we're young. When we're older, especially when the father was a good, loving, kind, gentle father who disciplined us, the very best that he could. As we get older, we, oh yeah, I respect them for that. How much more should we submit or place ourselves under the father of our spirits and live, the Father who loves us, the Father who accepts us. So we should place, we, the Jewish people in AD 65, should place ourselves under the Father's discipline in these hardships where he's training us, he's teaching us in the hardships, the us being the Jewish people in AD 65, correcting our thoughts, correcting our belief system about him. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? This is an internal discipline, right? Spirits, it's the internal person. The discipline of the father is internal. It's not an external punishment. It's not something externally that God sends against us to get our attention or to discipline us. It's the internal correction of maybe something we're believing, something we're thinking, it's the development of our faith, the development of the inner man, that God will use the hardships to develop the inner man. I think about Joseph when, when I see this. Joseph went through some extreme hardships. He was abused by his brothers, sold into slavery. He was accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. He was abandoned in prison. Before he was accused of rape, Potiphar's wife tried to have a relationship with Joseph. I'm amazed at why Joseph did not enter into that relationship. Look what everything he's been through. He's been sold into slavery twice. He's been treated like a piece of property. He's a nothing and a nobody to people other than what can he do? What can he perform? How hard can he work? His value is in his work, not in his worth as a human being. Had Joseph's mindset slipped to a, a mindset of unbelief in the love of God, in the kindness of God, in the goodness of God, he very easily would have said yes to Potiphar's wife. Why not? God's abandoned me. My brothers have sold me into slavery. I have nothing. I'm away from my home. Nobody will know about it. What's the use? It doesn't matter. My life is over now that my brothers have sold me into slavery. God's abandoned me. Why not? So the question is, why did not Joseph enter into that relationship with Potiphar's wife? He tells us. In Genesis, it says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? So his, his view of God never changed, even though he was undergoing severe persecution. He continued to view God as a loving God, as a good God, as a kind God, as a God who would fulfill his promises for him, even though momentarily and temporarily he was in persecution. 
So he held on to the character of God in his circumstances, and he persevered because he saw the promises of God being fulfilled in his life, even though he was going through persecution at the time. It's exactly what was going on in those in Hebrews 11. It's what Jesus did. He was convinced. Jesus was convinced of the love of the Father for him. We see that all through the book of John. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. It was this close relationship of love. They were bonded in love, Jesus and the Father. That's why Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. But he also saw the future promises of the Father being fulfilled in the resurrection, in the purification for sins by the blood of Jesus for our behalf. So we see that the discipline of God is for the good of a person. It's not that he's bringing hardships against us. The hardships that came against Joseph were not, they were brought by his brothers. And remember, Joseph ultimately became second in command in Egypt. The promise of God was ultimately fulfilled in Joseph's life but he had to persevere through the persecution to ultimately get to the promises. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling the Jewish people. Persevere through the persecution because the promises are coming. Don't throw away your confidence. Verse 10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us, corrects us internally, grows us internally, matures us internally. That's what James says in James chapter 1, he's writing to Jewish people scattered all over the world. They're being persecuted for their belief in Jesus as well. And he tells them, view your trials as God developing your character. Persevere in the persecution because as you persevere through the persecution, your character is going to be developed. God's going to mature you. He's going to grow you. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter as Jewish people too are being persecuted for their belief in Jesus as the Christ. He's calling them to faith in the persecution. Verse 10, they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now, what's holiness here? Well, holiness is used throughout the book of Hebrews. The blood of Jesus purifies from all sins, cleanses from all sins. We're made holy by the blood of Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, we are sanctified or we are made holy. It could be talking about that, that God wants to strengthen you to persevere so that you believe. That's the will of God. Believe so that you can experience the holiness that comes from faith in Jesus. Could be that. I think actually, though, it's referring to verse 11. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. The word holiness also means set aside. It's, it's the idea of being separated. God has separated for you something that you're going to experience. Uh, the, the literal translation, the Young's literal translation, they don't use the word holiness. They use the word separation in their literal interpretation, that God has separated something that you're going to experience one day. And if you you persevere, if you don't throw away your confidence, you're going to experience what God has separated out for you. And I think that's the new covenant city of grace, this enduring city that's coming. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. No discipline is joyful, but painful, sorrowful. Later on, the discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This phrase, righteousness and peace, is all through the Jewish scriptures. It's very Jewish, and it's it's referring to, to me, the coming of the Messiah when he rules and reigns on earth as king, and righteousness and peace is what characterizes Messiah's kingdom. You can read about that in Psalm 89. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, and Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. Righteousness and peace in the mind of a Jewish reader meant Messiah's kingdom. That's the holiness, that, that in Messiah's kingdom, that's the separation, there's going to be joy and peace. So in your persecution, don't reject what you received in the early days, this light that you received, Jesus as the Christ, his work on the cross, the new covenant, the new testament. Don't throw away your confidence. Because one day you're going to experience 
the Messiah's kingdom. And, and the writer of Hebrews writes about this kingdom around Hebrews chapter 12, I don't know, maybe verse 28. The, the unshakable kingdom that's coming. And we find out in Jewish scriptures, it's a kingdom of righteousness and a kingdom of peace. That's what God has separated out for those who believe. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The word trained here is where we get our word gymnasium. It's the Greek word and the root word for where we get gymnasium. So that we see discipline here is the training of God. We could say that these hardships was God's gymnasium to develop the faith of the Jewish people who were about to quit on Jesus. They were about to throw in the towel. They were about to walk away. They were about to throw away their confidence. They were growing tired and weary. They did not have the strength to persevere. And he's saying, listen, I want, I want you to see these hardships as God's gymnasium, as God's using these hardships to grow your faith, to develop your faith. And then he continues, verse 12, therefore, what's the therefore there? Because you are loved by God. Because you're accepted by God, because God is using these hardships to develop your faith, to restore your confidence in him that he's loving and he's good and he's, he's with you in this persecution that you're going through. He's going to use these in your life for good, even though others are using them for bad. It's like what Paul says, for we know that God works together all things for our good. It, it's, it's, it's reassuring them that something good is going to come from the pain you're experiencing. Therefore, because of God's love for you, because of God's acceptance of you, he hasn't rejected you. He loves you. He's going to use these hardships to grow and develop and strengthen you. Therefore, Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, this is interesting. The word strength means here means to lift up. Lift up your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, go back to Hebrews 12 when he says, run with perseverance the race marked out for you. The writer of Hebrews is still thinking about this race. And he's picturing the Hebrew people as runners who aren't running anymore. Their arms are drooped down by their side. And that's literally what this means in, in, the, in the Greek language. Their arms are drooped down by their side. They're barely walking on the course. They've even veered off the course of the new covenant of grace. They veered off the course that Jesus is the Christ. They're veering toward the course of law. They're veering toward the course of the law of Moses. They're veering off the truth that Jesus is the Christ. They're veering into rejecting him and denying him as the Christ. You can see that the persecution that they've been constantly enduring has weakened them. And the writer knows this. He knows emotionally they're weak, spiritually they're weak, mentally they're weak. I mean, abuse does that to a person. I mean, that's what's going on here. These people are being abused. They're being abused by religion. They're being emotionally abused, spiritually abused, mentally abused, physically abused, materially abused, financially abused. Things are being taken from them. They're coming to the place where their abuser wants them to come to. Deny Jesus as the Christ. Walk away from the cross. Come back to the law of Moses. Come to your senses. And they're going to beat them down and beat them down until they submit to their abusers. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went through the cross, had his resurrection. And that's what he's telling them. Focus on Jesus. You're going to get through this. You're going to make it through this. And this is how you're going to do it. Look back to those who died before you. Look to Jesus who died for you. And look to the God who loves you and who accepts you and who's for you. And is so good that he's going to take the evil that's coming against you, the hardships that are coming against you, and he is going to turn around and use those for good in your life. He is going to develop your character. He is going to develop your belief in him as a loving God and as a good God and as a kind God, because he has something good in store for you that these abusers cannot take away. 
Therefore, lift up your arms. Literally, start running again is what he's saying. That, that's the idea here, going back. And you can see the logic now of, of the writer. Start running again. Start lifting up your knees. As the, remember, the word strengthen here is lift up. Lift up your arms and start running again. Lift up your knees and start running the race of grace again. The grace of the new covenant of grace. Run this race. Jesus is the Christ. Then he quotes Proverbs 4.26, make level paths for your feet. They had veered off course. They were off the smooth course of the new covenant of grace where there's freedom in grace, where there's confidence that I'm forgiven and confidence that I'm righteous and, and, and the freedom of, of the new covenant. I'm cleansed from all sins. And they'd veered into the rocky paths of law. And they're stumbling now. They're, they're stumbling there. Is he the Christ? Is he not the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? I'm about to toss it all in. I'm about to throw away my confidence. And the writer said, oh, no, no, no. You are loved. You're accepted. The Father's going to do good in you, even though you're going through some bad things. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms or lift up. Start running again. It's the idea of catching a second wind. The second wind comes from knowing I'm loved by God. I mean, that'll help somebody when they're being persecuted, right? When they're going through hard times and difficult times to know, you know what? God hasn't abandoned me. He does love me. God hasn't rejected me. He does accept me. God somehow is going to bring good out of this bad that I'm in. That's strengthening. It, it puts us to where Joseph was. I, I'm loved by God. I'm, therefore, I'm not going to have a relationship with Potiphar's wife. I'm accepted by God. Therefore, I'm not going to have a relationship with Potiphar's wife. Even though I'm going through persecution, the promises of God are coming. They're going to be fulfilled in my life. Therefore, I'm not going to become a victim within my persecution. I'm, I'm going to excel in the middle of the persecution. I'm going to be the best manager of Potiphar's house that I can be. I'm going to be the best manager of the prison that I can be. And it was that attitude in the middle of suffering that enabled him to manage Egypt. We see what God did in Joseph, this internal discipline, this internal training of Joseph, ultimately preparing him to be second in command of Egypt and really to protect Israel, Abraham and everybody comes. Therefore, strengthen or lift up your feeble, weak arms. I know you're tired from the persecution. I know you can barely get through this, but run the race with perseverance, knowing that you're loved by God, accepted by God. He's going to do some things in your life that you wouldn't believe. Just trust. Make level paths for your feet. Get back on the course. You veered off to law. Come back to the new covenant of grace. So that the lame, that's those who, who were limping. They were spiritually limping, emotionally limping, mentally limping because of the persecution, so that the lame may not be disabled, or so that those who have been abused by the persecutors may not come to the point where they stop believing in Jesus as Messiah, believing as Jesus as the Christ, that the persecutors are not going to win. They're not going to disable you. They're not going to kick you out of the race. They're not going to get you to go back to the law. So that the lame, those who have been abused, may not be disabled, but the lame, those who have been persecuted, those who are on the receiving end of religious abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather so that the lame, those who had been persecuted, may be healed. That's ultimately what God's discipline, this loving God who takes the difficulties that these people were experiencing, the hardships and the persecution. And he's, he's writing to encourage them, the writer, to say, you're loved by God, you're accepted by God. God's going to turn this around somehow, some way. Ultimately, you're going to experience the promises of God fulfilled in your life, whether in this life or the life to come. Those in Hebrews 11 never saw the promises fulfilled. They died in faith. But he said, either way, you're going to see the promises fulfilled in your life. And the healing that would come from knowing that they're loved by God, accepted by God, that God somehow was going to take the hardships of the persecution 
and turn them around for good. Only God can do that. And you and I can look in our own lives. I can look at my life and look at things in my life where, wow, that, that was really difficult. And, and I came that close from giving up, from walking away from the whole thing. But somehow, some way, I was healed mentally, emotionally, spiritually in my relationship with God. And now I look back and I think, oh, boy, I never want to go through that again. But it was during those times that, of the valley that God did some things in me and through me in me then that were necessary for me to be where I am today. And he took the hardships of my life and made something good out of them. He did that for Joseph. He did that for Jesus. He's done that for many of you. And he will continue to do that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage to me these Jewish people who are going through the excruciating pain of rejection and persecution. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org. And you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.